Father, we thank You for this tonight. We thank You for the book of Job. Uh, Thank You, Father, that You saw fit to include it in in Scripture and bring it to us, for there is so much here that touches on our very lives. The pain that we often feel, struggles, how do we deal with things, Lord, so much of it is right here in this book. And so I pray that You will enlighten us, yes, Father, but also, Father, open our hearts to truly knowing Your will and who You are and the kind of relationship that You've called us into. Father, continue to draw us away from religion and into a personal walk with Jesus. And we thank You that Your Word makes this so clear. Holy Spirit, speak to us now through Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we left off at the end of chapter 7 and we looked at a specific Hebrew word. You might recall the word is Pakad. That's not Jean-Luc Pakad, totally different guy. This is Pakad, the Hebrew word. And depending on your perspective, we talked about last week that it comes off two very different ways. And David's perspective, when he uses the word Pakad, he translates cared for. That's the, the meaning David uses in Psalm 8.4. He says, What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Pakad. He puts the positive spin on it. Job spins it negatively. It's the same word, but from Job's perspective it translates examine or scrutinize. What is man, Job 7.17? What is man, and in verse 18, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? The difference between these two guys and the use of the word is perspective. It's simply perspective. It's not a God problem. It's a heart problem. Does God care for me? Or does God scrutinize me? And it really depends on your perspective. There are those in the world who feel like God's watching them, scrutinizing them, examining every move, and then there are those in the world who just say, no, it's not an examination. It's that He loves me so much He can't keep His eyes off me. Corey came up after Bible study last week and he shared this this, uh, little story with me and I have to share it with you. One day at a Catholic elementary school, it was lunchtime, and uh, the kids all filed into the lunchroom there, and, and on the table before them, some of the food was laid out, and one of the nuns had brought in a basket of fresh apples. But she placed a little sign beside it that said, Take only one. God is watching. A little further down the table, one of the younger nuns, a little hipper, she brought in a basket full of cookies. Well, one of the kids, apparently because it was scrawled in kind of obvious elementary school writing, had written a little sign by the basket of cookies that, that said, Take all you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> is God watching you or is God caring for you? Pakad, it, it depends on your perspective. And as we walk through the problems and the pitfalls, the difficulties of life, perspective is everything. How we choose to view, moment by moment, what's happening in our lives matters greatly. My perspective, and we talked about this last week, is first and foremost, God is love. That's where I start. That's where He invites us to start, because that's the impression we get of the Lord from Scriptures. Not just New Testament, but Old as well. God is love. You'll see that even more tonight. But this wonderful truth is often ignored. It's often forgotten, or sometimes it's tragically rejected, but it's got to be factored into a life of faith. In fact, there are two perspectives I want you to have tonight, if you will. Two that I hope you take home with you. And one is very simply, God is love. Factor that into your faith. Factor that into your Bible study. Factor that into your prayer life. God is love. And if He's love, then what's going on, what's happening to me, around me, well, it, it's... It's got to come back to that perspective. God's doing something here out of love for me. Without that, we lose perspective. Without that, we start to pull out things that look harsh, judgmental, condemning. We say, well, that must be God. God is watching you. Well, no, you've lost the perspective of love. Now, Job's three friends have already begun offering their pathetic perspectives. They're very religious, they're dogmatic in what they have to say, and they are not too loving. Last week we looked at the first of three statements by Eliphaz. 
Eliphaz is probably the oldest. Because typically in culture, in Job's day, the oldest would be the one to step out and speak first. And so Eliphaz, the oldest, speaks first. Next, Bildad will speak. Bildad is a little harsher, as we'll see tonight, than Eliphaz. Finally, the third will be Zophar, and he's worse yet. And they will just go round and round, giving their opinions, Job defending himself, fighting for his life emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically, as his three friends keep volleying these, these condemnations in his direction. Eliphaz says, Job, you must have sinned greatly for this to have happened. And the whole argument of Eliphaz surrounds one issue, the holiness of God. He says, God is holy, and therefore you must be sinful, otherwise this wouldn't be taking place. See, he argues against Job for the holiness of God without love. And Job answers Eliphaz. He says, your argument has no bearing here. In essence, Job cries out, yes, God is holy, but I am innocent. You can speak to me all day long about the holiness of God. I understand that. I agree with you. But I'm innocent here. I didn't do anything to deserve the pain, the sorrow, the suffering that I am experiencing. My pain is without cause. Along comes Bildad, the Shuhite. And we get the first of three statements by him. Even more harsh. And now Bildad, what he's going to do tonight is argue for the justice of God. God is just. And therefore, not only will Bildad say like Eliphaz, you have sinned, but Bildad's going to say, you are sinning. This is not a past tense thing to Bildad. He's going to look at Job and say, you're sinning right now. You obviously are still in this, this season of sin. You're in a state of sinfulness. And because God is just, you're being judged even in this moment. Therefore, God can't and won't restore you because you're a big, fat, stinking sinner right now. You ever felt that way? You ever wanted to walk into the door of a church but thought, I can't. If I do, the building will burn down. If I walk in the door, I am too much the sinner. And as I'm a sinner, well, God can't deal with me. Well, if you've ever read the Bible, you've probably heard this verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And furthermore, we're told that while we were yet in our transgressions, Christ died for us. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I have a tendency to do that. But here comes Bildad. And you need to understand, Bildad the Shuhite is a real heel. His comments are laced with judgment. (laughs) He thinks he's a shoe-in for the job, Carol. He absolutely does. He ought to get the boot. Well, let's see what he does here. Job chapter 8, verse 1. Let's just just get him out of the way, and now we can study. (laughs) Then Bildad the Shuhite. By the way, Corey walked up to me again two things last week. He said, oh, by the way, Dad, I think there's a guy who's shorter in the Bible than Bildad the Shuhite. Shorter than Bildad the Shuhite? Well, who's that, Corey? And he said, well, it was the Apostle Peter. Well, why is that? Well, because he slept on his watch. (laughs) My son. So proud. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. He's calling Job, as we saw last week, a windbag. You're nothing but hot air, Job. Does God pervert justice? And there's the key word. Justice. Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them into the power of their transgression. How do you like them apples? Unbelievable. Would you say to a friend who had lost a child, well, I'll tell you, the reason he died is he was a sinner. That's exactly what Bildad is saying. It's their fault they died. Nice compassion, Bildad. He says in verse 5, If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, though yet your end will increase greatly. If you were currently clean, Job, what he's saying here, if you were presently pure, God would rush to restore. 
If you just admit your fault, admit your sin, your current wrongdoing, you'd have a happy ending. Well, what Bildad can't see that we can is Job does have a happy ending. And it's not because Job confesses some awful sin that was hidden that his three friends may have suspected he was committing. No, there was no sin there on Job's part. And it's not because of a confession that God will later restore Job. As we've seen, there's something far bigger than sin going on here. Bigger than sin? Yeah, there is an epic battle. Satan going after the nature of God. Satan trying, through this man Job, to make God look bad. That's the issue at hand here. By the way, when people tell you that your bad situation must be your fault, here's what you do. You outfaith the criticism. You don't stand up and fight. You don't get defensive. You know, one of the worst ways to deal with something is to be defensive because defensiveness, what does that do? It kind of expresses guilt. Oh, I didn't do that. I wouldn't do something like that. You know, you start to fight for yourself and you just make yourself look more guilty. So don't fight back. The Lord is your shield. Just outfaith the criticism. Someone says, I don't think you really know the Lord. Fine. Let's see how it looks when Jesus calls us home. Let's see how it looks later down the line. Believe God for the final outcome in your life, in your circumstance, whether now or in eternity. If you're in the middle of a storm and people are looking and saying, well, what did you do to cause this? Just step back and go, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Lord, I'm going to cling to you. I'm holding on to you. And I will believe you for the final outcome. Job outfaiths his friends and he's finally vindicated. Job 42 verse 12 says, The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And in parentheses you might add, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar realized they were wrong. (laughs) Job didn't have to spend all the chapters defending himself because God brought about the ultimate outcome. The patriarchs and the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, on down the line, these guys outfaithed their critics. Think about this. What do you think people who knew Abraham thought when they buried him in the cave at Machpelah with the promises of God unanswered? God said, I'm going to make a mighty nation of you. And all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. And Abraham died and was buried. And the promise was not fulfilled. Not yet. Not at that time. What about Isaiah? Isaiah who preached the greatest messianic prophecy in all of history, in in Scripture. And yet, Messiah didn't come during Isaiah's day. He ended up sawed in half while the people were looking on. Must, Must have had a few thinking, wow, boy, he must not have been a right prophet. He must have been a false prophet or he wouldn't have been killed in this way. But he outfaced his critics. We stand now, we look back at Isaiah, we read what he wrote and we say, Jesus is all over that. Because he just trusted the Lord. Hebrews 11.39 says, All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I love that verse. They didn't get what God said they were going to get. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We together with them will enjoy the final outcome. You may not see the final outcome in your lifetime. Out faith the critics. You just keep believing. And knowing that God is going to pull out the final outcome, it's going to be amazing. What about Jesus? <laughs> he outfaced them all. As He hung there on the cross, the people wagged their heads at Him and they, they shouted obscenities at Him. And they said He must be guilty. He's on a cross. Jesus, the pure, perfect, guiltless, innocent Lamb of God, by Jewish standards of the day, the cross would have been proof of His sin. There's some secret hidden sin. Well, now we know the cross wasn't proof of Jesus' sin. It was proof of His love. And He held fast. All these, Job, the patriarchs, the prophets, Jesus Himself, they looked through the criticism to the place beyond, the glory beyond. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So hang on. Just hang on. You're going for a ride. 
And God's going to bring the ultimate outcome, the ultimate conclusion. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, Bildad goes after Job. He's trying to take him down. Well, perhaps he's not trying to take him down, he's, but he's taken him down. And he attempts to school Job a little bit in the justice of God here with three examples. The first example Bildad uses is he, he says, Learn from the fathers. Learn from the fathers. Verse 8. Please inquire of past generations. Consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Learn from the fathers. He says, look back. And you will see that I'm correct in my assessment. Bildad is among those who today might rewrite history. Because if you truly looked back to the fathers and learned from the fathers, you would note a few things that what we read in Scripture is not what Bildad is getting at. Bildad says people aren't miserable in their uprightness. If someone is righteous, then good things happen. And if they're unrighteous, bad things happen. Look at history. Well, that's not what history shows us. We see the righteous go down. Just like the unrighteous. We see the unrighteous often lifted up and used by the Lord. Jacob was not the most righteous of men most of his life. And yet used greatly by God. Abel was a righteous man and yet he went down. He's saying look back. Learn from the fathers. Well, Bildad, if you're going to tell someone to look to history, you better be careful to really think it through without assuming or presuming history's on your side. Because it's not. The second thing he says is learn from the fields. Not just learn from the fathers. Learn from the fields. Can the papyrus, verse 11, grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. And so are the paths of all who forget God. Just look at nature around you. Learn from the fields, Job. The rushes and the reeds, they need water to grow. What's he getting at? You need the water of righteousness to grow. If you were rooted in the waters of righteousness, you wouldn't be withering. But obviously, your roots don't go very deep, Job, because you're, you're withering before us. Bildad talks about the spiders of the fields. He says, The hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile, and whose trust a spider's web. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. You ever ever toyed with a spider on a web? Poor little thing. Sitting there happy, just enjoying the sunshine. You know... And all of a sudden, you come along and you shake the web a little bit, and he goes, "Oh!" And what does a spider do? Rarely do they drop off the web. Usually, they hold on even tighter. And if you're really one of those people who kind of sadistic, you know, you'll pop a corner off the web, and it flies in the wind, and the spider's just hanging on for dear life, you know. And that's what he says Job is doing. You're holding on to a false confidence, man. You're clinging to some kind of false righteousness, like a spider on a web. Job, you're flimsy. You're unsupported. You're a hypocrite. And not just because of past sin, but because of current sin. As Bildad goes through trying to school Job, he is revealing his ignorance. His own lack of knowledge. On a weight-to-strength basis, I I looked this up today, a spider's web is five times stronger than steel. If if you compare it, you know, based on, on its weight... The strength of the weight of a spider web, if it was the same weight of steel, would be five times stronger. A steel bulletproof vest of equal strength to a spider's web could stop a bomb from going off. That's how strong a spider's web actually is. Learn from the fathers, Job. Well, the fathers disprove Bildad. Learn from the fields. Well, the fields disprove Bildad's theory. He's the one who needs to go to school, not Job. Now he goes on, he gives Job a gardening illustration, learn from the flowers, the fathers, the fields, the flowers. He now compares the godless to weeds or wildflowers in a garden. Watch this, verse 16. He thrives before the sun, his shoots spread out over his garden, his roots wrap around a rock pile, he grasps a house of stones, 
If he's removed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Joe, if you think you're rooted in righteousness, watch out come weeding time. You think about flowers that will sometimes do that, especially wildflowers. They'll spring up right on a rock. And you can see their pathetic little roots just trying to hang on. And Job says, you know, God's like a gardener. He's going to come and he's going to grab hold and he's just going to rip you out and toss you out. The happy gardener. Look at verse 19. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the dust others will spring. What? What are you saying, Bildad? This is the joy of whose way? Listen, catch this. Bildad is saying, this is the joy of God's way. He's saying this just God actually enjoys ripping out wildflowers. Actually enjoys taking hold of those who are struggling and just ripping them off the rock. And then when he does, he tosses them away and he forgets all about them. The just God of Bildad. It's more bad theology. If a gardener pulls out a plant or a flower or a shrub, he doesn't care about it. He forgets it quickly, tossing it aside for another plant that perhaps the gardener wants to put in its place. God is not that way. Remember how Job finished up his statement at the, at the end of chapter 7? He said, you will seek me. He's speaking to God. He said, you will seek me, but I will not be. In other words, I'm going to die and you're going to miss me. And Bildad saying, no way, dude. God's not going to miss you. He just as soon toss you on the mulch pile as have a care for you because you're a sinner, man. You're a sinner. You're bad news. If you're weeded out, the gardener won't miss you at all. You will be forgotten. I am so glad it is not that way with God. What does the Bible tell us? Isaiah 49.15 Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, God promises. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very head, hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear you're more valuable than many sparrows. If a sparrow drops dead and God knows it, how do you think he feels about you? That's Jesus' whole point. God's got his eye on you. Yes, God's got his eye on you. He will not forget you. He does not forget you. He cares greatly. Hebrews 13, 5. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. By the way, for those of you struggling financially right now, that's the context of Hebrews 13.5. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. It is in the context of talking about money. Saying, don't don't be all concerned about money. I will never desert you. I will not forsake you. I'm going to take care of your needs. Will you stop worrying about your finances and put your eyes on the kingdom? And as Jesus said, all these things will be added to you. Verse 20, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, Bildad continues, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. He tries to lift it a little bit at the end of his, uh, end of his soliloquy here. If, if you will confess the sin that you're hiding, Job, if you will get right with God, then good things will happen. That's what he's saying. Bildad. Get right or get left. That's, that's when you, it's Bildad's bumper sticker. Because God is just. And if you are not right before God, you are going to be left. You are going to be forgotten. And this is the state that you're in, Job. And do you see the flaws in Bildad's thinking here? Yeah, he's dealing with the justice of God. He's got that right. But his perspective of God is more kind of a Zeus perspective. You know? The God who's toying with and playing with and tearing up and tossing out and forgetting whatever floats his boat. That's what he does to people. And he's a just and perfect God and you're not just and you're not perfect. King, listen. God is just. He is the ultimate judge. Absolutely. Psalm 19.9 The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Bildad's right. God is just. I love this, Revelation chapter 16, verse 7. The very altar in heaven cannot keep quiet. 
We're told the altar itself cries out, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The altar says that. You see, Bildad's judge is cold and uncaring and unmerciful. Bildad forgot to factor in the love of God. He forgot the love factor. God is just, but He is also as perfectly just as God is, He is also perfectly merciful. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon You. I choose that verse out of the Hebrew Scriptures to make this point clear. God has not changed. And both the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, same God is a God of both justice and mercy. Mercy and justice. And the psalmist understood that. You are abundant in loving kindness. I've shared this word with you before. It's an important Hebrew word to know. If you forget all the other Hebrew words I throw out, remember this one. Chesed. Chesed. It's probably the most important of all the Hebrew words in the Hebrew Scriptures. Chesed. And it means loving kindness, grace, mercy. In the NASB, every time you see that word loving kindness, it's chesed. But it is a broad and powerful word. It's been called the Old Testament reflex of the New Testament phrase, God is love. What John writes, 1 John 4, God is love in the New Testament. Every time you see chesed in the Old, it's loving kindness. It is the grace, the mercy, the unmerited favor of God. And that's what He offers. And we've got to factor in the love. A just God without love is a frightening thing to behold. Because nobody has a chance. Bildad tries to school Job in those three, four areas. You know that Jesus actually came along, Rabbi Jesus, our teacher? And there are three things specifically that He asked us to learn. Three things Jesus said, I want you to learn this. Three times. The first one is, He says, learn my plan. Learn my plan. Matthew 24, 32. He says, learn the parable of the fig tree. It's my plan. Learn the parable of the fig tree. It's all about the big sign of the last days. Israel, the fig tree, putting forth its leaves. And as you see those leaves coming out, you realize summer is near. Jesus said, learn that. Learn about the fig tree. It's why we go to Israel. It's why I talk about Israel. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Learn my plan. Number two, Jesus said, learn of me. Learn of me. Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn my plan. Learn of me. Third thing Jesus said, Rabbi Jesus, I want you to know this. Learn mercy. Chesed. Loving kindness. Learn mercy. Matthew 9 verse 10 says, It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and His disciples. The Pharisees saw this and they said to His disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard... He said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, literally mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Chesed in the Greek, in the Hebrew, the Greek equivalent, Elios, mercy. And what's interesting is that Greek equivalent of Elios, it it means specifically... Learn mercy. Learn mercy. Mercy as in the emotion aroused in a judge who is administering justice. That's what Elias means. Learn mercy. Man, if you go before the judge in a courtroom... I, okay, I had a speeding ticket a while ago. And I had to stand before the judge. And it was completely his choice. Does Rick have to pay the fine and have the ticket stick? Or does Rick have to uh, pay the fine and go to traffic school? Or will he be merciful and just give me a buy? Here, pay our fees and and we'll let you go. And I stood before the judge and I remember thinking, be nice, Rick. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be rude. Hey, Judge, what's up? You know, don't go in there with the wrong attitude. Don't whine. Just be nice and respectful to Mr. Judge because you want to arouse mercy in this man. 
And apparently he liked me because I got off. It was great. Scot-free. Well, no, I had to pay their little fee. But I'm clean for now. Until the next ticket. Mercy. Jesus wants you to factor it in. Factor in mercy. Well, chapter 9, going on with Job. Then Job answers. He replies to this man who presents God as the judge. Job says, In truth, I know that this is so. In other words, I know God is just. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. All right, Bildad, let's talk about justice here. Yes, God is just. Who could possibly win a case against God, however, in a courtroom? I agree He's just. That's part of my problem. How can I win? How can I even answer Him? He's perfect. I'm not. He's saying, who can bring their case before God? You know, some people do. In fact, many people are going to try. Lots of people think, well, I'll just talk to God later. I'll just deal with God. Every person who wants to will have their day in court. We've seen this a few times recently. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. You'll have your day in court. If you want to stand on your goodness, you will go before a just God and He will give you your just deserts. But see, the Lord privileges mankind with this truth that we might see the outcome of those who would try their case against the Lord. He tells us now because He doesn't want us to be in that courtroom at all. He'd rather have us fall on His mercy. Job is right. You cannot try God. But the lingering question is this. If you can't try God, then how can a man ever be right before God? This verse came to mind just this afternoon. Jesus said, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Now he's talking practically here. That's a good idea. Someone's going after you legally. Try to work it out before you get to court. Okay, that makes sense, Jesus, but there's something else here. There's a parallel that fits beautifully. You've got to get mercy before you arrive at court. Before you go to court, make friends along the way. What does Jesus say to us? I want to be your friend. Let's make friends now, before you get to court, so that you have mercy now, and the judgment in the courtroom later doesn't matter. Because by then, you know the judge. You're friends with the judge. You've been cleansed by the son of the judge. Job goes on now to describe God in a number of of amazing ways. He says in verse 4, Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied Him without harm or without losing, basically? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When He overturns them in His anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, the constellations, who does great, unfathomable things and wondrous works without number. Number one, God is unfathomable. He's unfathomable. Some people complain about this. They say, that's my problem. Your God is too big to figure out. J.B. Phillips once said, if God were small enough for me to figure out, He wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. See, I like that about God. I like the fact that He is so deep, we cannot plumb His depths. That He is so high, we cannot reach to His heights. That He is so big, we will never fully grasp the greatness and the splendor and the awesomeness of God. I like that because that draws me into worship. I look at God and say, Wow, there is no one who deserves worship like you. Some people don't like that. Paul wrote in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. 
For who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who's become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. We talked about this Sunday, didn't we? That our life purpose is exalting Christ. It's bringing glory to God because He's the one who deserves it and not us. By the way, you might notice this. I mentioned it before, but if you hadn't heard, verse 8, interesting, tramples down. He's the one who tramples down the waves of the sea. The words are literally, He is the one who treads upon the waves of the sea. Well, who tread upon the waters? Jesus did. Interesting. little prophecy there in Job. So the God who is unfathomable became, through Jesus, explainable. John 1.18 tells us. Job continues on, verse 11, he says, Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Number two, not only is God unfathomable, God's untraceable. He is untraceable. As Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 That's why we pursue spiritual living. That's why we must become more focused on the spiritual than the physical because that's where God is. Because God is spirit. And it's in the spiritual life we come to know God and we understand Him better. It's in faith that we grow in that relationship. Not in the flesh, not in the physical. God's unfathomable. He's untraceable. Verse 12. Were He to snatch away, who could restrain Him? And by the way, He's going to. It's called the rapture. Who could restrain Him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? (laughs) Number three, God is unaccountable. God's unaccountable. From time to time, I've had people say to me, okay, Rick, you're the founding pastor of the bridge, an independent fellowship of Christians not tied to another church. Who are you accountable to? People always like to ask that question. And I answer in several ways. Number one, I'm accountable first to my wife. No, Uh, I'm accountable to God. First and foremost. But I'm also accountable and have made myself accountable to our shepherds here in this fellowship. In addition, I'm accountable to you. I've told you over and over, you have your Bibles open and you check everything that's taught here. And you call me down on it if I'm off base. You check it out. You are my accountability for everything that is taught from up here. And my accountability for how I live my life. We're accountable one to another. God is not accountable to anyone. He doesn't have to explain Himself. Oh, you can ask, but He doesn't have to answer. Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, verse 13, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or has counseled, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? Who taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? Who is God accountable to? Himself. And that's it. He is unaccountable to anyone else. Verse 13. Job says, God will not turn back His anger. Beneath Him crouch the helpers of Rahab. And that's not Rahab. It's not talking about Rahab the harlot. Her story comes out quite a bit later. Who are the helpers of Rahab? Well, number four, what Job is saying here is God is unconquerable. He is unconquerable. He's referring to, and this is a little history here, an old Babylonian creation myth. He's referring to a legend that was familiar in the patriarchal period. period, Another reason why we think Job was alive around the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right in there. But this Babylonian, Babylonian creation myth is, in essence, that the Babylonian god Marduk defeated the god Tiamat, or Rahab. Rahab is this other god. Also called, by the way, Leviathan. Interesting. And then after Marduk in this big epic creation battle defeats Rahab, he captures the helpers of Rahab. And what Job in essence is saying here, using that myth as a word picture, he's saying God is unconquerable. Oh, you can go up against God, but you will lose. You can't fight Him. He he cannot be beaten. He's unfathomable. He's untraceable. He's unaccountable. He's unconquerable. And so Job's saying, with all that understanding, how am I supposed to go up against Him in court? He's the Supreme Court. He's the great justice. How do I go against Him? Verse 14. 
Job continues, How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Even if I were righteous, I couldn't present my righteousness as my defense. I could only throw myself on the mercy of the court. Verse 16, If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Ever been there? Ever call out to God and just think, man, even if he did spoke, I don't know if I believe it was him. I don't know if I could. Why would he listen to me? You ever have trouble believing it's God who's answering you? I love the story in uh, Acts chapter 12. Peter's there in prison. And the fellowship there in Jerusalem, oh, they're praying big time. God, release Peter from prison. Let him out. Save him, Father. And so an angel goes to the prison. He shakes loose the bars. A little earthquake action there. Peter gets out. Ends up outside. The angel departs from him and Peter goes straight to the house where this little group of people are praying. There's a knock on the door. Rhoda, go get it. So Rhoda, the servant door goes. To, servant girl goes to the door. She opens the door and looks. It's Peter! <clears throat> Runs back in. <laughs> it's Peter! No, it's not Peter. Go, go check the door again. We've got to keep praying for Peter. And they keep praying for Peter. <laughs> He's out there knocking. Rhoda goes back out like three or four times and they keep saying, no, it's, it's not Peter. Maybe it's an angel or something. They're more willing to believe that it's an angel than an answer to prayer. And how often are we in the same place? We're praying, praying, praying. God, do this. God, do this. We know you can do this. And He does it. We're like, yeah, later. God, do this. Job's kind of there saying, man, even if I did get a response to God, I don't know if I could believe it. Well, that's a faith issue. That's what faith is for. That's where God is taking us to believe that it's His answer knocking at the door. To truly believe He has rescued. I think there are a lot of times we're still praying and God's standing there. We saw that in Daniel. Love that example. When Daniel's praying, he prays this prayer and he keeps praying and praying and praying and when he opens his eyes, it tells us Gabriel is standing there. How long had Gabriel been standing there tapping his little angelic foot waiting for Daniel to finish praying? So often we just keep going and God has already answered our prayer. But it's our faith that hasn't heard His answer yet. Verse 17, He bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get, get my breath. I can't, I can't breathe. I, I was talking to Don Coglin today. and Those of you who know Don is dealing with chemotherapy and treatment for cancer. And he spent four days in the hospital over this last weekend. And Don, because he had two blood clots in his lungs. And he said, I, I was standing there and he said, I couldn't breathe. You know how when you run, go a long run and you stop and you're having trouble catching your breath, he said, I couldn't catch my breath. Well, that's what Job's saying. My pain is so great. I, I can't even catch my breath before God. He saturates me with bitterness. Verse 19. If it is a matter of power, behold, He is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon Him? How'd you like to be the court clerk sent out to summon God to a court date? Stop, just the messenger. Here are your papers. <laughs> I'm not the guy who's doing this. Who can summon him? Verse 20. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. <laughs> I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. He says, man, even if I say I'm perfect, I stand condemned. Because I don't know all of the dirt that's in the cracks and the crevices of my soul that I can't see. Job is on to something here. He's right. As good as I may feel like I am before God, I really don't know. I know there's sin in me somewhere. I know I'm a sinner. How can I dare stand up before God? You're calling me out before God's justice, Bill Dad? How in the world can that help me right now? How could any man bring his goodness before God and bear the outcome? Verse 22, it's all one. Therefore I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Hold on a minute, Job. That's not God. Job just crossed a little line here. Oh, not not sinfully and... But his perspective is messed up. Why is his perspective messed up? Because he's in pain. Remember, he's speaking out of anguish. 
God doesn't, however, condemn the guiltless and the wicked. In fact, it's just the opposite. He blesses both. Matthew 5.45, I used this verse last week, and I need to make a correction that you, so that you all hear this. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I used that verse last week and implied it as a negative. It's not. It's old Bible study habit from when I was a kid. I remember the first time I read that, and I assumed rain was a bad thing. It's because that's what our weather casters do. Have you noticed that? Why do they do that? It's going to be rain today. Hey, the sun's out and shining. I mean, you know, rain's good too. And when God sends the rain in Israel, oh, it's precious for Israel. Important for the produce of the ground to bring the fruit for the just and the unjust. What Jesus says, it's the opposite of what Job just said. Job says, God, He condemns the just and the unjust. Jesus says, no, God blesses the just and the unjust. If you live in this world, guess what? Whether you believe in God or not, you receive His blessing. There are people who will wake up to beautiful sunshine who have absolutely rejected God outright. But they're blessed by the sun. They're blessed when the rain comes and waters the flowers and makes their gardens grow. They're blessed when there's food on their table. They're blessed when they have friendships and when they have moments of joy. And all of that is just freebie. God just saying, I created you, enjoy just and the unjust. But remember, Job's depressed. His perspective is skewed by his pain. In verse 24, he says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. And he, talking about God, it says, He covers the faces of its judges. And if it is not he, then who is it? Great question, Job. Great question. If it's not God who does this, well then, who does it? You see, Job needed to read chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 18.25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God, being the judge of all the earth, is completely just. So who is it, Job is asking, who would cover the faces of the judges of the earth? Who pulls the wool over their eyes? Who's behind the loopholes and the lies in the courtrooms? John 8.44, Jesus tells us he's a liar and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Paul tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's the problem, Job. You want to answer the question? If it's not He, then who is it? It's Satan. There is an enemy running around in the world trying to blind people, trying to obscure justice, trying to feed lies, causing problems. Verse 25, Job says, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good, they slip by like reed boats. You ever make reed boats, stick them down and float them in? One of my kids' favorite cartoons recently is the one with poo sticks. Winnie the Pooh and his friends are standing on a bridge and he accidentally knocks a stick down in the water and it floats under the bridge and they run to the other side and it comes out and they come up with this whole game, poo sticks. And Job's saying that my life, it slips by like poo sticks. like reed boats floating down the river like an eagle that swoops on its prey though I say I will not I I will forget my complaint I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful I'm afraid of all my pains I know that you will not acquit me I am accounted wicked why then should I toil in vain why even try that's what he's saying If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. And you know what? He's right. What? Job's on to something. He's on to the sin nature of man. Even if I were to clean myself up, put on my nicest suit, do the best I could, show up looking righteous and holy... Well, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah 64, verse 6. All our righteousness are like filthy rags. Recognize that, gang. The best you have to offer God in comparison to His righteousness is like a filthy rag. And the kind of rag that's being talked about in Isaiah there is pretty graphic. I'm not going to say what it is. But because the ladies laugh, they know. Do you see now how far off Job is saying, how far off God's perfection, even our absolute best appears? 
He's saying, I can, I can show my goodness to God, my righteousness, and I'm still worthy of one thing. What's that, Job? The pit. See, he's realizing, as good as he's been in his life, it's just not good enough. For he's not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. So that'd be nice, Job saying, if God would come and I would, we both show up at court and then I could lay my case out. I could actually fight for myself in, in that scenario. But he's not a man. I can't do that. He says, there's no umpire between us. You baseball fans, who may lay his hand upon us both, upon the batter and on the pitcher and say, you guys get along. You throw the ball at him like that one more time, you're out. You know, There's no umpire here. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. And then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. I have no boldness. I can't stand up and talk against God. I'm afraid before Him. I can't plead my case, he says. I need someone to plead it for me. He's crying out, listen to this, he's crying out for an umpire, a defense attorney, a mediator. You know who he's crying out for? This is Job's cry for the Christ. It's what he needs. It's what we all need. We'll come back to that on Sunday. Chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, and by the way, now he does. From this point forward, he now turns again and Job starts to talk to God. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Or your years as a man's years? That you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? In three verses, Job asks three questions of God. He says there in verse 4, Are you unjust like a man would be? He says in verse 5, Is your life so short like a man's life? And is is it so short and empty that you'd make sport of me? Is that what's going on here? Verse 6, he says, Don't you have anything better to do? (laughs) I mean, Job is saying, Lord, are you a bully? I mean, is that what's going on here? Now, you might think, as I did when I first read that, Wow. Job is really, I mean, for a man who said, I'm afraid to talk to God, he's talking to God. And he's laying it out there. He's saying, Lord, are you just beating up on me for sport? But remember this. Job isn't talking about God. He is talking to God. And what we see as Job talks to God every time, we get a sense this is a man who had a relationship with God. Before all this happened... He is able to come before God and to share his heart with God even though his heart is messed up and upset and depressed. And he knows it is. He goes back and forth. He realizes what he's saying is is ridiculous. But hey, he is speaking openly to the Father. Praise God, this man is speaking openly to him. Unlike as we saw last week, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, who speak about him but will not speak to God, Job speaks to him. He's not condemning the Lord here, but he's saying, God, this is how it feels. It feels like I'm just being beat up for sport. Verse 7. According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Job knows that God knows that Job didn't do anything to deserve this. God's the only one who does know that. Yet there's no deliverance from your hand, he says. Your hand's fashioned and made me altogether. And would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay. And would you turn me into dust again? The cry here is, God, I'm frail, I'm feeble, and you know this. Please, help. Does God know that Job is frail, that his life is accounted as dust? Yes, he does. Again, Psalm 103.14, He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. He knows. He knows there's not a whole lot to our substance, that we can come apart pretty easily. God understands this. Verse 10, I like this. He said, Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? (laughs) Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? I really like those two verses, man. Talk about the miracle 
of, of birth, but before that, the, the miracle of, of this period here of conception and gestation happening in the womb. Did you not pour me out like milk? Think about the, the connection, what he's saying. They're curdling me like cheese as, as sperm and egg come together and begin to form. And then you clothe me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. He's talking about the process of development in the womb. And he's saying God's fingers are on the very beginning of it through the whole process. There's a statement of life. If there ever was one right there. And it's beautiful. In verse 12 he says, You have granted me life and watch this loving kindness. Chesed. Now this is one of the bright moments of Job. He's thinking in faith again and he's saying, you've given me life and you've given me your loving kindness and your care has preserved me. Yet these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is within you. God, I know you well enough to know you are a God of mercy and justice. I believe in your justice. I believe in your holiness. Where's your mercy? I know it's in you, Job is saying. And there it is, chesed. Job begins to do something here that is exactly what a person should do in times of pain. Listen to me. If you are hurting, if you're crying out to God and you're getting no response, and you feel alone in your pain and you don't know where to turn, Job remembers the chesed of the Lord. Job returns to loving kindness. In this moment of bright faith, he does what the psalmist does. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 77 place to go I've shared in the past the place to go when you're hurting and you're not getting anything back from God and you feel alone in your pain Psalm 77 11 the psalmist lays this whole thing out about what dire straits and despair he's in and then he says I shall remember the deeds of the Lord surely I will remember your wonders of old I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds the best thing you can do when you can't hear from God is think about what He's done good. Consider the loving kindness and the mercy that He has shown you in the past. The reason you believe in Him in the first place. Remember the mercy of the Lord. That's what Job does in this, in this moment. He remembers the loving kindness. He seems almost to raise up a bit. There's, there's some positive movement here. You think, oh good, Job's going to be a little less depressing. Not so. Because he sinks back into dismay and confusion and depression If I sin, then you would take note of me and you would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. Then if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you'd hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me. That word witnesses is literally plagues. (laughs) This man is major league plagued. You renew your plagues against me. You increase your anger against me. Hardship after hardship is with me. That phrase, hardship after hardship, he's saying changes and warfare are with me, literally. Changes and warfare. In other words, I am facing wave upon wave upon wave of pain and sorrow here. And it all started when the fields burned and I lost my flocks and my servants. First wave. And then after that, second wave, here comes a guy saying, yeah, your family was all killed, the exception of your wife, unfortunately, have all died. Here, I'm kidding. (laughs) Sons and daughters were in the house when it fell in, second wave. Third wave, the boils appear, wave after wave. You know, emotion and pain are fickle things. And they will come and go and they will strike us. And when faith begins to emerge out of our hard times and our struggles, it's almost as if Job right here has a flare-up of pain. Oh, Lord, but I'm in pain here, you know. He begins to remember the loving kindness of God. But but I'm in dismay, I'm distressed, I'm in despair. Suddenly he's down again. It's wave upon wave he feels is hitting him. Verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb to tomb. (laughs) And then he says, Would he not let my days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return. 
to the land of darkness and deep shadow, a land of utter gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness, Job's faulty perspective of Sheol, the afterlife we talked about Sunday. Job ends this soliloquy, and, and the next one to pick it up, of course, is Zophar. And we'll come back to him next week. But he ends this soliloquy saying, Lord, would you just leave me be for a few days? You know, give me two or three days of cheer before I die. I'm going to die anyway. I'm not long for this world. I'm about to push up daisies. <laughs> Job is, is, in a, is in a grave situation here. Sorry. Perspective. Perspective. Job is a godly man. He spent his life attempting to live right. But he's in such a place of pain that he literally can't see straight for it. It hurts too much. His friends, though meaning well, are in such a place of of concern that they become condemning and they can't counsel Job straight. And two perspectives are lacking with Job's friends and Job himself. Perspective number one is chesed. Factor in chesed, as I said, the loving kindness of God, the love of God factor. Job's friends lack that big time. They are not factoring in love and and patience and goodness and kindness when they talk to Job. Bildad's primary problem, God's a God of justice without mercy. And he's missing the love factor. Eliphaz's primary problem, God's a holy God without love. He's missing the love factor. And that's the first perspective that is lacking. But there's a second. And it's the perspective that Job himself is lacking. He hints at the loving kindness of God, the chesed, back there in verse 12. He knows God is love. And that's why he can't accept the counsel of the other guys. So the first perspective, Job knows somewhere in here, there's got to be an outworking of God's love. But he's buried under a pain that is burying him. And Job remembers the love. Enough that, as we said, he never condemns God. He just questions. He never quits on God. He just wants the pain to quit. He never rejects God, but Job rejects his circumstances. Put yourself in Job's sackcloth for a minute. Have a seat in Job's ashes. What would you do? What would you do? You're the one who is experiencing all this loss and all this pain and all this agony, what would your perspective be? What is the one perspective more than any other that we need when the whole world seems to fall apart around us? I'll tell you what it is for me. Perspective number two. Factor in heaven. Factor in heaven. The love factor critical in our treatment of others and our understanding of God, but the heaven factor. Bildad says, Job, get it all together, and what? You can have a good life now. Eh, thanks for playing. It's not what it's about, Bildad. Job says, leave me now, Lord. Let me have a few days of cheer before I die. Again, eh, it's not about now, Job. He's missing the heaven factor. Both Bildad and Job are focusing on the now Now, of course, they didn't know Jesus yet. They didn't understand the heaven factor as of yet, but we do, don't we? Believers in Jesus, Christians, you know where you're going. You know the heaven factor. Paul said it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If that's where your Christian hope is, For what it will provide for you now? What a pity. What a pathetic, sad thing. You are not a follower of Christ Jesus to become a positive thinker in this life. That's not why you signed up. You are not a a, a follower of Jesus to live your best life now. That's not what this is about. Because some have followed after Jesus Christ and lived their worst life the rest of their life until the heaven factor played in. And Paul, I've shared before, is a great example of this. Gave his life to Jesus and it was downhill from there. Scourgings, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks. People against him, thrown out of every decent town in, in Judea. 
And then he continues on his missionary journeys. He's rejected everywhere he goes. And ultimately, Paul is beheaded. Your best life now, Paul? If you compare the life Paul lived before he met Jesus with the life he lived after Jesus, by these circumstances, you'd have to say, I'm leaning toward the former. And yet, Paul said to live as Christ. Remember that? To live as Christ. And to die as gain. Philippians 1.21 And on the night of Jesus' betrayal, as he's about to go to his death, he looked at his apostles and he said in John 14, he said, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, listen, you know the way where I am going. I love it. Thomas, who had trouble with the spiritual, he had to see things tangibly. Thomas said, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And that's the key. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know where you're going. The heaven factor. We are journeying to eternity by way of the cross. And it may get hard. And it may be painful. And it may even be torturous. But we know where we go. And that, my friends, gives us the perspective to live for Christ now. The heaven factor. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And John wrote in 1 John 3.2, We know when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. The heaven factor. It's what Job lacked. It's what you have if you are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father, thank You for the gift of Your mercy and Your grace which provides for us at the end of this journey, however short or long it may be, Your grace that provides for us heaven. And not just heaven as a place, Father, but the place where You are, the place that You have prepared Jesus. That when we go, our spirit immediately gets to be with You. If we should die before You call us home. And if we're alive at the time of Your calling, that we will immediately go to be with You. And Father, with this joy set before us, we can endure. And I pray that You would continue to fill each of our hearts and our minds, our spirits, with that, with that joy of our eternal promise of heaven with You. As we walk in the love of Christ and Your mercy, and we look to heaven, and we know our day of judgment has come and gone on Calvary 2,000 years ago, And so we have an eternity to look forward to and these light and momentary afflictions and troubles and hardships. Oh, Father, they're just for a short time. We know this. Help us to look through them and to see the goal to be with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.